Hello and welcome to The Undaunted Creative, a podcast that takes a closer look into the story behind success in the creative fields. Today's guest, Bert Burdine, built a career in radio and education through hard work, dedication to his craft, and having the unique ability to recognize and nurture talent. As a radio program director and on-air host, Bert worked to create and cultivate not one, but two impactful moments in radio history. As an instructor, his insight and devotion to helping students become successful radio professionals has spawned a who's who of creatives, not solely limited to the radio industry. We will discuss his rise in the industry and roadblocks he may have encountered, as well as his educational career as an instructor at Columbia College Chicago. Throughout, we will take a steady trip down memory lane as we touch upon music, culture, and social change from the past 50 years or so. Bert, welcome. Well, thank you very much. I didn't know I didn't know I could do all that. <laughs> well, you know, a fascinating fact that always elicited a reaction from students in your classes was when detailing your background, you would tell the class about your time spent growing up in Inglewood on the city's south side. As we, as we go back in our time machine, can you give us a vivid picture of what that was like? Well, oh, wow. Uh, well, let me just say that my high school days and grammar school days were eh, not, not that great. The neighborhood was okay, you know, not much of a problem there. And, uh, it was, you know, I was a kid, but I always, always loved radio. And any chance I had to listen to the radio, I took it. And, you know, I know a lot of kids today are trying to figure out, and for that matter, yesterday or the day before, trying to figure out, uh, what am I going to do with my life? I knew. I knew from the get-go because I always loved radio. And I just wanted to uh, pursue that as a career as I was growing older. And uh, and it, it happened. I didn't know how to do it, <laughs> except that I knew that's what I wanted. Uh, and uh, uh, the... the uh, advisors that I had. I had a advisor, one advisor in high school, and I told him what, what I really wanted to do. And, uh, but there was no help there. You know, nothing like, uh, well, you should take a speech class. You should take this class. You should, but that, that never happened. I did hook on to when I got into high school. Is it okay if I start with high school? Because that's really where, you know. Absolutely. And with, uh, with high school, I had an advertising teacher. I loved her. And I did some crazy things that, that she really liked. And then uh, I knew that there was something there that I, I could develop. And I said, well, do you teach any other classes? And she said, yeah, that, that she teaches a speech class. Well, I didn't need speech. You know, I'm, I'm from the South Side. I don't need that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry that I didn't take take a speech class though, because I, I really think that would have helped me in the long run. So it was sale. It was a, a sales class that I took as well, and that helped me as as well as far as developing. And I just didn't I just didn't know what to do. And I, every, everything that I did in those younger years, I sort of figured out on my own. 
And that's it. That's what I did. I figured it all out on my own. When I uh, I went for a year to Wright and uh, to Wilson and Wright Junior Colleges, that didn't really help me very much. So I went to a broadcasting school, and um, that kind of, that uh, that steered me in the right direction. I was always working, by the way. I worked uh, selling shoes. That did that helped me. And when I uh, graduated from the broadcasting school. Uh, I was still selling shoes. I was selling for a shoe company that uh, had stores all over the city. And from time to time, they would send me to different stores and had to help them out. I was offered a, a, a general, not a general, I was, I was offered an assistant managership. And my father told me, you don't want to do that because it gives you an extra $25 a week and another 50 hours of work. And so um, I continued my pursuing of uh, getting a job in radio. And uh, I, I went to Iowa. Well, didn't know I was going to be a nomad. Well, in Iowa. Be before we get to Iowa, I want to ask you, you know, sometimes in life, support systems and mentorships come in many forms. And before you transitioned to radio, which you just spoke about, you were working in that other career. Was your family supportive of this change? Um, I don't think they knew how to handle it i don't think they knew how i how i could get into the business or offer me any kind of uh, advice um that that didn't really happen um when it did happen when i got my first job that's when things came together because i needed help because i, I couldn't survive on on what i was making but they knew it was like an education for me. Those first jobs were, you know, that was pretty big. I had to go and buy a car. They helped me with that. And uh, yeah, it, it was, um, there were some other things too that uh, that sort of put some blockades in, in my way. But uh, I managed to circumvent and get around them. And uh, things developed better when I came back to Chicago because I went to work for a couple of record distributors and that's where things started to develop for me. Well, we're definitely going to get to that portion of your life. And I want to ask you about your, you locate a broadcasting school in Iowa and that begins your tour, so to speak, of working at a few radio stations in Iowa before making your way back to Chicago. You brought up an excellent point the other day in our conversation. That point centered around let go, getting let go from those stations, which in some ways for a radio professional always seems like a rite of passage. In other words, it's that age-old adage in the industry that you haven't made it until you've been actually fired. Did losing mm -hmm. that job really light a prover proverbial fire underneath you? Um, I Probably because I wanted to make my way into, into radio. I really didn't care what what I did in radio, as long as I got there, I just, I just wanted to be in radio. And I, I figured out finally, well, let's see if I could work for a record distributor, maybe I could find a job in, at that time I knew about promotion and I knew about going to radio stations and bringing records there. And so I thought, well, maybe I could work my way up into promotion. And uh, 
it, that worked for me in a different way. I worked for a couple of record distributors who, you know, had some great artists, Pat Boone for one <laughs> with Dot Records. And then uh, I went to another, uh, another record distributor. You know, at that time we had distributors distributing records, not just, you know, not just Capitol Records or RCA Records. You had other distributors distributing smaller labels and some larger labels. Anyway, um, I ended up working for a record company that was located in Des Plaines, Illinois. Their primary um, instrument, because they would record the music and they would have it pressed, you know, the, the records were pressed. The guy that owned the record company was also in the printing business and the well digging business. And it was replica records and that that's they made records and no console, by the way, I have to tell you this because of of what of what Columbia does. And that is, you know, with the sound, they were feeding music from the microphone directly into an Ampex tape recorder. I mean, no control board whatsoever. It was fantastic. And the guy had a pipe organ right in his uh, garage. And uh, I started going from one radio station to another. You have to understand that at that time, we're still talking monaural. I got to bring this in because a lot of people have no clue that they're listening to stereo. They just think it's radio or it's music and that, oh, we got two speakers. That's nice, but it's stereo. And there wasn't any stereo at the time that I was starting. And uh, uh, it was always monaural, but there was experimenting going on. And eventually we, uh, you know, eventually they developed a stereo. But um, that brought me around to radio stations. And there was one radio station that, um, that I took a liking to because we came out with our first jazz record. <clears throat> and, excuse me. And this, station, <clears throat> and this station supported that jazz record, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that made me feel really good. And I got to know the owner of the station. It was at 333 North Michigan Avenue top floor and uh eventually i the guy like got to liking me and i liked him and we talked radio he was an engineer had no clue about radio programming or what to do on the radio at least i i didn't think so but he was a great guy and he loved doing what he was doing he happened to be in the music background business and the, and there's a little background on that because back in the day they used to what uh, restaurants and shopping malls would have music piped in, but it came in by telephone line. Eventually, the systems developed where we had what was called multiplex. It's still called multiplex today, and it's able to. That's how we get stereo. And so he developed. He developed. Uh, this multi he helped develop the multiplex uh, system and as a matter of fact i gotta i have to mention this too because he loved radio and he loved doing what he was doing so much and he was a great engineer and i learned an awful lot from him just like i learned about editing from replica records so well as we're going down this memory lane wclm 
you're doing on-air programming, production, even marketing your own show. And through the internet, I unearthed this interesting article archived from a publication called Cashbox. And let me read this to you. Under record rumblings, June 1961, the following appeared. Quote, Bert Burdine celebrates his third anniversary on WCLM with a special two-hour program spotlighting Chicago jazz talent. Among his guests will be Ed Higgins, Eddie Harris, Ramsey Lewis, and advertising man Dean Schaefer. This is impressive. How did you wind up scheduling such an array of talent while doing this show? Oh, my God. I don't even remember that. Well, um, I started working on it. Uh, Dean Schaefer was an advertising, an advertising guru, and he was also a tenor saxophone player, and he had a band. And he would play, you know, weddings and, you know, events, advertising uh, events. And I got to know him. And I think I did, I probably did an interview with him and played some of the music that he had recorded. And um, Eddie Harris was local. So I, that was easy. And Ramsey Lewis Ramsey, I went. I, I was pretty tight with um, with Chess Checker Argo Records, uh, which be, Argo became Cadet Records, and I knew Phil and uh, Leonard Chess, and I told him that I like to record Ramsey and do a show with him, and they said, well, yeah, okay, well, let me call Ramsey, blah blah blah, and uh, I recorded it there. And I remember Ramsey saying to me, words to the effect that, uh, why, why do you want to do this with me? I said, well, you're Chicago. <laughs> you know, that sort of makes sense. You're Chicago. You play, you play piano. You know, you got a couple of hit records. Why not? And so we, he went along with it. And I used, I used the rehearsal studio at Chess Records up on the second floor, <laughs> I think it was. And uh, we just sat and recorded. And any time that I thought there was a mistake that I made or that he made, not a problem. Just keep recording, you know, because I, I took it all back. I took it all back to the radio station and shopped it up and made a made a, a our show out of it. I think that's what it was. You know, we we talked about impactful moments in radio history, and you mentioned one of them at WLC, WCLM. You were part of the first radio stereo broadcast. Not only was this impactful, but revolutionary. I mean, this changed everything for radio. How did this come about? Well, I thought it was a great idea to, at that time, I was with Replica Records. And I was also doing a show on WCLM, on, I think it was on Sunday nights. I would play, you know, some pop, pop music. And I talked to the owner and I said, you know, it'd be a good idea maybe if we can play, you know, do an hour of uh, replica records and, uh, but we need another radio station. And he knew, he knew someone at, at another station and we would, we fed a wire, you know, we fed one channel over to the other station and we got some publicity out of it. You know, FM's first stereo broadcast on two FM stations. There was some guy that was renting extra radios for people who didn't have 
two FM radios. And, and um, we did that. We got some publicity out of it. And that was the first stereo broadcast. What I did was we made some announcements. We re- pre-recorded it. And I had to bring down, because we did not have a, the radio station did not have a stereo recorder. So I brought the stereo recorder from Replica Records. We packed it up. It was Ampex 350-2 and brought it down to the the station. And uh, we made announcements and we, you know, splicing tape all over the place and putting a whole hour together. That's how we did it. We play. We would play uh, some of the music onto, you know, onto the tape, just like you would make, uh, you know, a, a tape today, you know, a, mi- a mixtape today. <laughs> That's what we did, and it was great. Well, we talk about the Chess Brothers. They were an instrumental part of the history of music. Phil Chess and Mickey Shore from WSDM reach out to you regarding programming WSDM, which was a pop jazz station. For those who might be a bit unfamiliar with programming and the program director role, you are, as a program director, responsible for choosing content, hiring and training staff, and also have a great deal of pressure due to that role. What were some of the rules of thumb you went by when choosing content, staff, and most importantly, keeping management happy? Well, I I tried to get that job for a long time. And um, Mickey Shore was a friend of Phil Chess's. So, and I understand that. Phil brought him in, but Mickey was having a problem trying to put music together. I think he needed someone to, to do the music. Well, I think because of my association with Phil and Leonard, and they knew that I was bugging the previous person who was who was just, you know, uh, putting the station together just to get it on the air. Because they were they were concentrating really on WVON. As a matter of fact, I used to say, we're the by the way station when it came to selling time. Because everybody, the sales staff was out there selling WVON. It was very hot. It was a hot radio station. And we were, oh yeah, by the way, we also have WSDM, you know, that type of thing. But I, um, I think that's how I got the job because eventually uh, Leonard Chess called me. There's a, there's a quote in the book, um, turning, turning Blues into Gold by Nadine Cohotis. I think that's, that's correct pronunciation. And uh, she wrote a book and I helped her with some of the, some of the input about my part of getting, getting the job there. Leonard woke, woke me. <laughs> Leonard woke me up at about six o'clock in the morning, and of course his expletives were very unique. Get your out of the bed and get over here. And he took me on a tour of everything that they had from the radios. From the uh, I met him at the at the uh, record company, and then he took me on a tour of where they were pressing records. And he took me to the radio station, blah, blah, blah. I can't even remember everything else, but I was highly impressed. And then they offered me the gig. And I met uh, Mickey Shore, and I started working there. That's it. 
Well, yeah. I, I also. Problem, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, but you were asking me about. Uh, it was the station with the girls and all that jazz. Yes, yes. And so it was staffed by females on the air, and then about a lot of it was taped. Uh, we brought in ringers to record back cells. Oh, should, I, should I say what a back cell is? I think anybody that's listening to to us knows what a back cell is, but it's telling what, what was just played. That was so-and-so by blah, blah, blah. And I would record sessions with these people that would come in, females that would come in. There were models, some were voiceover people, and, uh, and then some of the people that we had working on our staff as far as making the log and uh, you know just being in the building, that's who we, you know, we would use their voices. And eventually we said, well, you know, we got to liven this place up a little bit. This is not, this is not very good. And so we, we hired people to be on the air, you know, typical four or six hour shifts. Well, I want to get to your programming acumen because I also want to take time to acknowledge that Chicago radio music history might need to be altered a bit. For years, there was a station in Chicago that went by the moniker Smooth Jazz, but in reality, Richard Earl Pagee, in his blog, The Best Music of Your Life, that you, in fact, created the blueprint for an all-jazz format in 1965 at WSDM. You were the first. What was your thinking behind creating this format? Well, we wanted to make it palatable for the person that really didn't care for jazz. And um, so we added the pop element to it. A pop, Mickey. Mickey had a line, and it was some, it went something like this: uh, "We want to be pop-oriented jazz and jazz-oriented pop." That sort of made sense. And so anything that we programmed had to have that kind of feel, had to have that kind of element in it, and um, it worked. At least I thought it worked, and. Um, we we didn't I, I know we were unique but the ratings weren't there and eventually that that did cause a problem so we uh we beefed it up even more and we brought in let's see mary d who was a jazz disc jockey on wbee at the time and we brought her over and we also had yvonne daniels and uh that was that was wonderful because she and I got along really, really well. And uh, I, I, I miss her to this day. Anybody that has worked with her knows how she, how she was. And the girl could sing, the woman could sing. And so we made, we would record, uh, I would write some lyrics and she would help with, you know, writing lyrics. And we took pop tunes and wrote an intro for her program. and. That that would seem to work too. And then she said, "Okay, the den." Oh, then we turned it into the Den of Daniels, and uh, she would uh, have. I gave her a lion on on record, you know, or on, on tape that she could uh, she <laughs> she could talk to the lion every now and then. Or if there was something that she said, maybe it was underlined by the lion roar. So, you know, it was really very good.
some yeah. great theater of the mind. And, you know, you and Mickey were responsible for that impact moment in radio history outside of being part of the first stereo broadcast is, and, and honestly, I'm not sure that this has ever been done since, hiring an all-female on-air staff, as you mentioned, the Den Pals. Talk about being undaunted. The radio station became known as the, quote, station with the girls. Was there pushback from advertisers regarding putting this together? No, I didn't think so. But there there were other female disc jockeys on AM stations. You, uh, there was at least two. I know, I, I can't remember the call letters, but there were uh, female disc jockeys on radio, all, all girls, you know, all girls, all, you know, 24 hours a day. But um, I would have to do my research again and find it. But it was AM, and we were the first in Chicago, as far as I know, with an all-girl format. And eventually, that changed, too. Well, the Den Pals became a huge hit. And I saw there was an actual fan club. I saw this article where you and the girls traveled to various outposts to meet fans. What was that like? Was it a bit like Beatlemania? No. No, it wasn't anything like that. Um, there were some advertisers that, uh, that would like to have some of the girls show up and I'll be honest with you. Sometimes we had ringers, you know, <laughs> and just gave them some names and that was it. And, uh, other times, uh, they were the, the real people who, who were on the air. Um, Yvonne did some personal appearances and, uh, we had, I think it was copper was one of our female DJs, and uh, there are a few others. Sometimes it's a little foggy of trying to remember all this stuff. But uh, it was just, oh, yeah, you you would talk. To this day, I still get feedback from, well, she's a very close friend of mine, Penny Lane, Sandy Marcus, Penny Lane, and she'll tell me, you know, it, it's amazing because she'll talk to people, and, they, and they, oh, yeah, oh, WSM, oh, sure, yeah, the, the station with the girls and all that jazz. Smack dab in the middle. <laughs> amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> well, the girls really catapulted to fame in many areas of the entertainment industry, including film and TV and you know, Linda Ellerby. And you mentioned Yvonne Daniels, legendary broadcaster. And um, the one, her name just slipped my mind. She was uh, in the, she was in, in what film was it? Oh God. Um, you may, you may have to edit this. Tron? Um, oh, Cindy Morgan. Okay. In Tron, Cindy correct? Morgan. Say it again? I think in Tron, correct? The original She was in Tron. Tron, but the movie before that with, um, I thought I wrote it down here. Oh, the movie with some of the stars from, um, Saturday Night Live. Murphy, Murray. Oh. Bill Murray, stripes um, with the uh, oh, with the Gophers. Oh yeah, uh, uh, um, Caddyshack. Caddyshack. Wow. Caddyshack. Cindy Morgan. I brought Cindy Morgan in. She was a DJ uh, in Rockford, Illinois. And was that it? Or was she? Or I think she was doing weather because she was a beautiful woman. And she did weather in Rockford, on, on TV in Rockford. And she wanted to, I think she wanted to make it in, in Chicago. And so we hired her to be on the air 
as a disc jockey. And that, by that time, we were already at 875 North Michigan Avenue, I think. Uh, and um, yeah, but she also, then she, then she left, she left us and went to California to, to make her fortune. I understand she did pretty well there too. Not necessarily uh, on screen, but behind, you know, behind the, the screen, helping, helping other people. And then there was, and Linda Ellerby um, was on Nickelodeon and she developed some children's programs and uh, her, and we gave her an on-air name of Hush Puppy because she was from Texas. Wow. So we were Hush Puppy. Um, we had a, a Jewish girl on the air with, <laughs> and, and Mickey came up with the, with her name, which was Halava. And then we're, we're discussing, well, is it Halva or Halava? It doesn't make any difference. And then uh, a few other people. Um, I, I gave Sandy Marcus uh, Penny Lane. And I, I can't remember. Every, oh, Dawn uh, was Connie Surzon, who ended up at WIND doing a, a, a radio show there. So here we are developing all these people, coaching all these people, and they're getting jobs every place else. And I'm sitting there as a, as a teacher. <laughs> well, yeah, you're beaming. You're beaming, probably saying, look, at I'm, I'm sitting down watching Caddyshack. There's Cindy Morgan. Yeah. You know, you're listening on the airwaves. Uh, Yvonne Daniels is there. And, and, you know, across the, and Linda Ellerby, of course, doing so many things from the journalism side. Um, I wanted to get back to WVON. You're next door to WVON, which is a legendary station that provides African-American-oriented talk to listeners, and it's really a voice for the community, right? It was very common to have many dignitaries stopping by WVON for a live conversation with the hosts. One particular day stood out for you. This is a moment that's actually etched in my mind because of what you described to me. I would like you to share that with our listeners. Well, it's pretty simple and it's pretty short. Um, there were, there was a, a lobby that uh, would divide WSDM and WVON. Not, not to separate. I don't want anybody to get the idea it was segregation because it certainly wasn't. We were welcome. Everybody was welcome in any part of that, of that facility. So one day I, we heard that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was going to be there. I mean, we knew about it. So it wasn't like him just dropping in. We knew he's going to be here tomorrow. Well, I want to meet him. And at that time, Mickey Shore's son also wanted to meet him. We all wanted to meet him. So I'm walking through and E. Rodney Jones, who was the program director of WVON, was standing there and Lucky Cordell was also standing there. And in the middle between the two is Dr. Martin Luther King. So I'm able to stop and just, you know, gaze at him. And Rodney introduces me. And it, it was like, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> what do you, what do you, you know, oh, it's a pleasure to meet you. You know, I, that's all I can say, you know, without, I don't know. It was just, it was a, a, it was a great moment in my life. That's for sure. You know, as we, know. as we move into the 1970s, we come to the disco era. What memories do you have from that time period 
the era of excess. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, well, you know, after my days at, uh, at uh, WSDM, because WSDM then transformed to The Loop, and uh, I was, um, I, I always say I was moted. I didn't know if I was pro or demoted because they were kind enough to move me into the sales department. And from there, I made my way over to WGCI. So now I was back in the building that I was in originally. You know, there's a lot that's missing here. I mean, we, you know, as far as, uh, because we moved from uh, 3350 South Kedzie to of five five something South Michigan Avenue, and then over to 875 North Michigan Avenue. So during that time, things were changing, but uh, um, and, and and there was other episodes and what whatever happening there, and uh, I knew that this was going to be something different for the Chess Brothers, or at least for let's see. Uh, Leonard was gone already. He had passed. And uh, Phil took over the station. And um, let's see, we were, uh, and, I, and I knew I was going to be leaving. And I didn't want to just leave and, you know, with uh, sour. I didn't want a, a sour leaving, you know. But I did find a job at WGCI. And I was their program director. And it was, I think disco had just started to peak and then start to fall. And the only thing that I was trying to do was to keep it alive. And it wasn't working, although I knew something was going on there because I would look at the ratings and I, I developed a program of live of live recordings, you know, Ohio players, as an example, and any black group that I could find that had a live recording, I was, I featured that from, I think from 11 until 12 at night. And I would look at the hour by hour ratings, spiked from 11 to 12, but it wasn't enough, you know, from, uh, from, from the overall, and of course, some of that stuff was not disco, but disco was starting to to falter. And to this day, I still say that some some of the stuff that the Rolling Stones were doing, you know, were disco. Absolutely. I agree 110% with you. Would you say that there was a lot more quantity than quality coming in the 1970s in terms of music? I think it was what they were doing with rock and roll, with rock and roll singles back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, just get it out there. Get all these simple lyrics out there and let's see what happens. And I think that happened with a lot of disco, too. It, 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 you know what? It's, it was the record business because I remember, as an example, although a lot of it was pop music, when Warner Brothers came out with a label, they just took a bunch of records, whatever it was that, you know, that, that they recorded, throw them up against the wall, see what sticks, and, and we'll go with that. And I think that happened with a lot of rock and roll records, and I think that happened with a lot of disco records. You throw them up against the wall, see what sticks. Donna Summer, 
Gloria Gaynor, and there's others, I'm sure, that I, I can't even think of right now. And some of that stuff just stayed to this day because it, it's the good music out of all the garbage that that was out there. The one-hit wonders. Yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah. So I would be remiss if I didn't go over your second career as an educator. At Columbia College Chicago, you mentored students directly by teaching them the ins and outs of the radio industry. When did that spark to teach first get ignited? It started at, um, at WSDM because I got a call from a guy by the name of Arthur J. And he was running Institute of Broadcast Arts. And I said, oh, well, you know, yeah, I was thinking about teaching. Actually, somebody earlier that a, a friend of mine said I should be teaching at Columbia College. And, uh, what are you talking about? You know, I'm not a teacher. But then I started to think when this call came through about teaching, and um, it, he was located at 600 South Michigan Avenue, by the way, on the seventh, I think it was the seventh floor. Doesn't make any difference. The point is, I went over and met him, and he gave me the outline of what they teach. It was like a nine month course, very similar to the kind of course that I took. And we, I know that we have some of those still around the area or at least around the uh, around America. And um, I said, well, yeah, I think I could do this. Can I sit in for a, for a while? Oh yeah, help yourself. So I stayed there. I don't even remember how many years I was there. And then I got to know L. Parker. And I got to know Al Parker through the intern program when I was over at WSDM uh, in, on, on Michigan Avenue. And um, because Al had called me about teaching, uh, or I'm sorry, Al had called me about having an intern program, which is what I started. And then the radio program was starting to expand more and he need, needed someone to put together a music, a music program, a music programming program. And that was me. So I would come, that was one of the things I did. I, I, I also did the, uh, I, I think I shaped up uh, fundamentals of radio as well, but the music programming, I had separated that into rock, jazz, soul and put that together from a, a programming point of view. I, I don't even remember what the syllabus was like, <clears throat> but I did that. And um, he gave me some classes to teach. And that that was the beginning of it Well, at Columbia College. Exactly. And I could say verbatim, there are so many students that have appreciated your positive and encouraging approach to the student success of those students at Columbia College Chicago. Uh, would it be safe to say that your programming background and really your diverse career working with many people from all walks of life contributed to your success as an educator? Well, I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, you, it's, um, I've always had respect for the student and I think that's, that's major. And not all students that we had were really very good on the radio. But there's something else that, that they can do because if they have a love for radio, radio needs producers, radio needs people that can edit 
you know, that can work uh, uh, the controls and know what to hear for. And it also can improve their communication skills, uh, and I, which I know I need a little help in. <laughs> oh, please, please. <laughs> no, but, but it helps in everything. It helps in sales. It helps. It just helps overall, I believe. And so some of these kids that came in uh, to learn about radio, I think found other avenues as well. And it's a growing process too. These are things that um, that nobody ever ever told me. So I think I felt obligated to give them as much as I possibly could in experience and always always telling them that you know, it may not work for you, but try it, see what happens. And nine times out of and 10, you, those students- And I have it. to say, I'm interrupting you and I'm sorry about that, but I have to say you do the same thing too. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that, Bert. And, and I can tell you, you know, there are so many professionals out there who are working, as I said, not only in the industry, um, but outside of this industry, who I know you keep in touch with through social media, through Facebook. And it, it's just, it, again, I think we're like beaming parents when we see the success of those students. Good way to put it. You know, I don't know if we have time. I have, I have a story where... You know, we would give assignments in the in what we had uh, an RB1 class, which was a class for, you know, you have to prepare and be on the radio and hand in assignments. And I'm, I think I had a decent ear where some of my students were doing the assignments at home because the, the technology is there in the late, you know, as we progressed, the technology is there where I wanted them to do a radio program. And sometimes I could tell that they were doing it on the computer and splicing it all together, but I heard it. I could tell the difference. And one student said, well, well yeah, I'm really not interested in all this. I said, well, you should be because you're gonna use your voice. Now, how are you going to use your voice? when it comes to introducing something or exiting something. You need this. It's not gonna hurt you, it's gonna help you because it's that extra experience that you're getting. And maybe you'll get a job doing a radio show. That person's doing voiceovers now for cartoons. Amazing. You never know. So many and, nuggets of wisdom. Oh God. And he stays in touch with me. I, I see him every now and then you know, making a comment or liking something that, that I did or that I put on uh, my Facebook page. So, Well, Bert, as I said, so many nuggets of wisdom. It was an honor having you on The Undaunted Creative. Well, I appreciate it very much. Thank you.